Good afternoon, good evening, and good morning to all, wherever you may be across the globe, who are joining today's American Task Force for Lebanon, National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations jointly hosted webinar and discussion titled, Can Lebanon Be Saved? Before proceeding, allow us to recognize the latest outbreak of violence occurring in the Ukraine. All of our collective thoughts and prayers are with all people who, like us, yearn to pursue their lives and dreams in safety and security. A special welcome to today's featured specialists, Ambassador Edward Gabriel, President and CEO of the American Task Force on Lebanon, Mr. John Abinader, American Task Force on Lebanon's Vice President for Policy, and Ms. Mona Yakubian, Senior Advisor to the Vice President of Middle East and Africa at the United States Institute of Peace. My name is Patrick Mancino, and I serve as the Executive Vice President and Director of Development at the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. I want to welcome all of you locally and from across the world who are viewing today's proceedings. Of course, I also bring you warm greetings from National Council President, Founding President, and CEO, Dr. John Duke Anthony, Board Chairman John Pratt, and our devoted Board of Directors, a special shout out, of course, to our council's own two members of our board of Lebanese ancestry, Tom Sams and retired Colonel Abbas Daouk, the council's management and staff. A special thank you to everyone from the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations and the American Task Force on Lebanon who worked behind the scenes to produce today's event. To our distinguished speakers and presenters, you also honor us with your expertise, passion, love, experience, and prolific advocacy for your beloved Lebanon. Today's proceedings and transcripts will also be available online and saved at our respective websites, YouTube channels, and other social media platforms. When the American Task Force for Lebanon reached out and asked to partner with the idea of providing a virtual webinar and platform to share and discuss their beloved Lebanon and the recommendations and findings contained in a seminal paper entitled, Helping the Lebanese People Move Toward Recovery, Recommendations for U.S. Policy, a collaboration between the American Task Force on Lebanon and the Middle East Institute. We accept it as a project to help the people of Lebanon, and we certainly accept for all of humanity. One could hardly turn away from such a topic that comports with the educational mission shared by the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations and the many students academics, program alumni, policymakers, and others who participate in the National Council's programs, projects, events, and activities. I am sure you will take away from today's speakers the case and cause of Lebanon and continuing United States involvement to support the Lebanese people is simply not an option. It needs to remain a priority. It's certainly in America's interests and it certainly aligns with our shared values. In American equivalency terms, for those of you that might not be too familiar with Lebanon, Lebanon is about the size of Rhode Island, a small nation. Lebanon's population of indigenous Lebanese is about 4 million. Added to this is the sheer number of refugees between 1.5 and 2 million refugees from across the Arab region, including Syria, Iraq, Sudan, and more than 200,000 Palestinians under UNRWA mandate. Lebanon also boasts one of the world's largest diaspora of, of, of roughly 12 to 16 million Lebanese that live outside of Lebanon. They are everywhere. They are in North America, South America, Europe, and of course, all across the Middle East region. The Lebanese people are part and parcel to America, coming uh, to America back, dating back to the 1860s and continuing even today. Ladies and gentlemen, Americans uh, and of Lebanese ancestry occupy or have occupied the highest levels of American business, education, sports, entertainment, literature, poetry, medicine, government, and just about every place in American society. Suspend yourself for a moment. Put yourself in the shoe, souls, and situation of the average citizen of Lebanon. What would today's daily life look like? I call on the International Crisis Group for some illustrative examples. The World Bank has ranked Lebanon one of the worst of economic crises to afflict the country since the late 19th century. For many, electricity is available if you are lucky for about three hours daily. Medicine and medical supplies are tough to access 
And you can see pleas on social media to bring in cancer medications, blood pressure medicine, baby formula, and even headache tablets. Gas prices fourfold, fivefold, and now closing in on unaffordable levels from gas smuggled onto the black market, if you can get it. Unpaid rent, the Lebanese currency losing more than 90% of its value. 80% of the population living in, near, or in poverty. Unpaid government, military, civil servants, unemployment. And last and not least, ammonium nitrate improperly stored at Beirut's port, leaving a crater of 140 meters wide killing 204 people, 6,000 injured, and 300,000 people displaced and ravaged. Buildings, infrastructure miles away, not to touch on COVID. Life, ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you, is not normal. Enough said. Allow me to turn today's program over to someone that I met over 34 years ago as a young Hill staffer working for a Lebanese-American, the Honorable Mary Rose Okar. John Abinader has not given up on Lebanon and its enormous challenges and difficulties. Ladies and gentlemen, I present and turn the program now to your moderator, the American Task Force for Lebanon's Vice President for Policy, Mr. John Abinader. John. Thank you so much. Uh, but before I begin, I want to thank the National Council for hosting today's event and for Pat's thoughtful and generous comments. Pat, you really uh, laid out the situation in Lebanon quite well. We appreciate your role as one of the key policy centers in Washington on U.S.-Arab relations. Please give our special regards to Dr. John Duke Anthony, who could not be with us today. He has been a great mentor and source of wisdom for over 50 years in Washington. And I personally have benefited from a close relationship with him in my early years of my career. Today's discussion is an update to the policy brief that Pat uh, mentioned, helping the Lebanese people move toward recovery recommendations for US policy. The third in a series of policy briefs that we have done for the incoming administration, now administration. And it was a joint effort and continues to be a joint effort of the American Task Force on Lebanon and the Middle East Institute. Importantly, with the cooperation and collaboration of more than 22 experts and analysts on U.S. youth Lebanon policy. So the collaboration among these people has created this policy brief and we have presented to the administration and Congress to help shape U.S. policy for Lebanon. As was mentioned, joining me today is Ambassador Ed Gabriel, the president of the American Task Force on Lebanon, and Mona Yakubian, uh, who's senior advisor to, for Syria, the Middle East and North Africa at the U.S. Institute for Peace. Ambassador Gabriel and I are headed to Lebanon soon as part of an ATFL delegation to gain on-the-ground perspectives on the many issues affecting the U.S.-Lebanon relationship and what can be done so we can continue to inform and educate the policy-making community in Washington about the importance of the U.S.-Lebanon bilateral relationship. At ATFL, we believe that Lebanon, a friend and partner for more than 150 years, has a role to play in our overall US foreign policy that should not be subject to regional pressures, both internal and external, that would like to see the independence and sovereignty of that state dissolved in favor of other political priorities. At ATFL, we are committed to not let that happen. We think there is a specific role for the United States to play. At the macro level, these include number one, leadership providing international leadership with our partners in the international community. Secondly, we believe that we must build political support for anti-corruption measures, equitable banking reforms, rule of law, and free and fair elections in May, and rebuilding trust with the people. Just as important is clarity and consistency of expectations, making sure that the government, candidates for election, and the Lebanese people know what the United States stands for and what we believe are the core steps for rebuilding Lebanon and the assistance that we are willing to provide. Thirdly, we believe it's absolutely important to sustain Lebanon's security, its sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity are critical. Yes, that's a lot to ask, yet we cannot be shy about wanting to do our part to save Lebanon from its often callous leadership 
internal challenges from Hezbollah and traditional political elites and desperation of its citizens, not to mention the refugees trapped in the current sickness that is Syria. With that said, I'd like to bring on our first speaker, Mona Yacoubian, who has been prominent in US Lebanon policy for decades and is a voice and conscience that we, we rely on. Mona, let me ask you for a start, why the United States with everything that's going on now, why should we bother with Lebanon? How does it mirror US interests? And how can a damaged country like Lebanon share interest in the United States? In today's environment, despite the Ukraine crisis consuming so much oxygen, why is the relationship important in terms of US interests? And why even in the deluge of concern with the situation in Ukraine, how do we maintain our concern for what's going on in Lebanon, the humanitarian, political security, and other concerns that we have with that country? John, thanks so much for your question. And thank you to the National Council on US-Arab Relations and to my dear friends at ATFL for sponsoring this very important panel. Um, and John, let me, let me take your question and start with a top line, which is that I'm gonna to try to make the argument that with all of that that's going on in Ukraine, I would argue it's more important now than ever to pay attention to what's happening in Lebanon. And the reason I, I wanna make that point is first to walk the audience through a little in a little more detail, the very acute humanitarian crisis that Lebanon is currently suffering through. I think it's important to underscore from the outset that we have unfortunately seen continued inaction by the Lebanese government in the face of an unprecedented economic meltdown. We have seen Lebanon's currency uh, depreciate in value more than 90% in the past two years. Uh, we've seen as a result record inflation well over 200 percent. It's among the highest inflation rates in the world. Uh, we've also seen Lebanon's GDP plummet some 58 percent in two years. This is the most significant economic contraction in the world. Uh, as a result, we are seeing this unparalleled humanitarian crisis. Pat noted at the top, you have now more than 80% of Lebanese living below the poverty line. A third of Lebanese live in extreme poverty. We're also seeing rising food insecurity. A third of the Lebanese population is food insecure. They don't know where their next meal is going to come from. We're seeing rising food prices, and I'm gonna unpack that further in just a moment because it connects directly to the crisis in Ukraine. Um, we're also seeing as a result, and because of the absence of a social safety net in Lebanon, that people are having to resort increasingly to what are called negative coping mechanisms. And what we mean by that is you're seeing, for example, an increase in the number of Lebanese children who are forced to work to help their families. And as a result, we're seeing large numbers of Lebanese children have their education uh, disrupted, maybe more than a million Lebanese children now not in school. Um, not surprisingly, with all of this, we are also seeing, even with this very resilient Lebanese population, a loss of hope. So there was a Gallup poll uh, recently that indicated that some two thirds of Lebanese would like to leave the country permanently. Um, finally, and this starts to get into some of the US policy implications, we're seeing a very disturbing development, something that I think many of us uh, watching Lebanon with a US national security interest lens are concerned by, and that is we're seeing some numbers of uh, impoverished, uh, uh, angry young men uh, who have lost hope join ISIS. Now, I don't want to exaggerate it. The numbers aren't large, but it is worrying that, for example, in recent raids undertaken in Iraq uh, on ISIS cells, there was some number, maybe four or five, uh, of Lebanese young men from Tripoli who were killed. 
And the, so this is a very worrying instance of where we see poverty and disaffection begin to perhaps feed much more worrying security threats. And of course, um, the enduring defeat of ISIS is a significant US national security policy interest in the Middle East. And so this has direct bearing uh, on our national security concerns. In essence, what we are seeing, in my view, is Lebanon transformed before our eyes from what was a once vibrant, though troubled, middle-income country into a humanitarian basket case. Uh, and this is something that we have to think through and understand uh, that may have enduring structural impacts, demographic shifts, social shifts, economic shifts, that if they, these kinds of structural changes do in fact take place, it could take years, even decades to bring the country back. Uh, and that could have, again, enormous security uh, implications for the United States. Um, I want to turn for a second to Ukraine, because it, it is, it, of course, uh, as is, was mentioned at the outset, my, my thoughts and prayers are with the Ukrainian people today as they, as they have to endure uh, horrific uh, aggression from, from Russian forces. But what we're seeing and what we're, we've been warned of by the IMF, we're already beginning to see some significant economic impacts that could be severe and enduring. Uh, that are impacting countries like Lebanon. So Lebanon imports the vast majority of its wheat from Ukraine. And we are already seeing impacts of that on this country that was already food insecure, where um, according to the World Food Program, Lebanon's food prices have increased 1,000% in the last two weeks, which is just an astounding number. We're seeing huge concerns about uh, uh, the availability of wheat. Apparently Lebanon is down to just one month supply of wheat. So we're, we're seeing some coping mechanisms, some stopgap measures being undertaken. For example, uh, milled flour is being rationed to only those bakeries that produce the staple Arabic bread. But these are small stopgap measures that aren't going to be able to address this now gathering even more significant food crisis. And of course, just as we are here in the United States, the Lebanese too are seeing fuel prices increase over already high fuel prices. Uh, and so what we're seeing, I think taken together is we're seeing that, that already fairly acute humanitarian crisis that I described at the outset now being exacerbated and deepened by this new shock uh, uh, as the reverberations of the Ukraine conflict now uh, echo into Lebanon. All of which I think leads to, Jean, your question, the most important part of it, which is like the stakes for the United States. And certainly understanding that our national security apparatus right now is understandably mobilized toward this very significant conflict in Ukraine. Uh, and therefore there are issues around limited bandwidth. We're seeing significant resources being deployed toward the Ukrainian crisis in the most recent budget, nearly $14 billion, uh, underscoring again, the magnitude of this conflict and its impacts. Um, but what I would argue is when we start to understand again, the deepening effects of the Ukraine crisis on Lebanon, it underscores even more how Lebanon cannot be ignored because uh, unfortunately, my concern is, as humanitarian conditions in Lebanon continue to worsen, we need to increasingly be concerned once again with the prospect of even bottom-up social explosion, social unrest, uh, bread riots. We're seeing already, apparently, according to recent reports, some, some unrest in Iraq uh, over these same types of issues. We could very much see this take place in Lebanon in the coming weeks and months. This is a concern because Lebanon's stability has always been a linchpin of US policy toward Lebanon and its policy toward the region more broadly. And so I would make the argument that frankly, the US can ill afford one more crisis on top of the one that, that we're already contending with in Ukraine as well as many other hotspots in the world. Uh, Lebanon is still 
relatively somewhat stable, but it is very much teetering, I would argue, on the abyss of a much deeper crisis that will be much, much, much more difficult to uh, address uh, in the absence of concerted action. So let me conclude by maybe making a few points of, of what, what I think the US should be focused on. Um, certainly, uh, as noted from the outset, the responsibility for Lebanon and its, uh, and, and its people lies squarely with the Lebanese government. And the US, as it has, should continue to pressure this government to undertake the badly needed reforms as, as recommended by the IMF in order to help put Lebanon on a more stable footing. So that's point one. Point two is we can't expect much to take place between now and May, early mid-May, when Lebanon's parliamentary elections are scheduled. And it is essential that those elections take place on time, that they be free and fair. Uh, the US, to the extent possible, should provide assistance uh, for both election observation as well as election preparation, voter awareness. And once the elections take place, the US should really uh, uh, impress upon uh, the new leadership the importance of forming a cabinet and moving quickly on these much needed reforms. Um, that said, we are also in the midst of this fairly acute humanitarian crisis in Lebanon. And here I think it's very important that the US maintain, if not increase, its humanitarian assistance to Lebanon. I think that the USAID should continue to review its standard development assistance portfolio and see where and how it can pivot its programming to better address some of the more urgent needs that the, that the Lebanese people are currently facing, particularly, frankly, in the education sector, where, as I said, you're seeing significant issues with, with children not being able to come to school, but you're also seeing increasing pressures on the public education system as many Lebanese families can no longer afford private education and are, are sending their children to the public to the, to the public schools. I think the US should think about, con about uh, consider at least working with the IMF to possibly develop an emergency fund for those countries like Lebanon, but not only Lebanon, Egypt would be another uh, in the Middle East that are adversely affected by this surge in commodity prices in particular as a result of the, of the conflict in Ukraine. And finally, I would be remiss if I didn't underscore uh, the very important role that I continue to believe the Lebanese diaspora can play. And of course, ATL, FL is one of the preeminent uh, Lebanese diaspora organizations. The magnitude of the challenges in Lebanon are so significant that even without crisis in Ukraine, um, there's no possibility that assistance dollars uh, are going to be sufficient to address this. It is really important to harness uh, the, the know-how and frankly the resources of the Lebanese diaspora and of the private sector to work together for creative solutions to help Lebanon uh, gain a more stable footing. Uh, I'm gonna conclude by answering the, the question that was posed in the title of the panel, can Lebanon be saved? I, I would say a resounding yes, it can be saved, but it's going to require concerted action by key stakeholders, most importantly, uh, Lebanon's political class must be held to account to uh, begin to address these issues and put its country and the Lebanese people first. Let me stop there. Thanks so much, Sean. Thank you, Moni. You've given us a lot to think about, and we'll circle back with you after we hear from Ed and dive deeper into some of the issues that you raised and talk a little bit about the refugees as well. If this program was being held four years ago, it would be all about the refugees. And now the refugees are almost like the, the bottom of the uh, docket. And let's see what we can do to talk about how to bring some quality of life back to the Lebanese people and see how the elections might be able to be an opportunity for that to happen. Our next speaker, Ambassador Gabriel, has led the American Task Force on Lebanon uh, to become the most proactive and prominent voice of Lebanese Americans on policy issues. Last year, Ed, Paul Salem, and Ambassador Frank Wisner 
sent a letter to Secretary Blinken proposing a whole-of-government approach to how the U.S. should build its policies toward Lebanon. And the policy brief gives eight recommendations to the Biden administration regarding Lebanon policy. Given everything that's happened in the last month, what do you think are the key messages to the administration in the run-up to the May parliamentary elections in Lebanon? So thank you, Jean, um, and also to Pat and Mona, as well as you, Jean, for your remarks. Uh, it was, a, I think, a very strong tour of what the problem is, what the challenges are facing uh, Lebanon, and a beginning of a discussion about how the U.S. can help. Uh, so thank you very much. Um, let me uh, jump in and maybe what, what I consider to be, you know, the good news, which uh, we can cover pretty quickly. Um, I believe that um, the world um, that cares about Lebanon, the allies, the U.S. and its allies, are of one uh, mind. That's the good news. We don't have a lot of competing uh, opinions going on about Lebanon. The French, the Gulf, the Americans, the Biden administration, the Congress, and the, most of the friends of Lebanon who really want to get something done are on the same page in terms of what has to happen. And Mona touched upon that. But I think that's, um, I think, I think that's very good news. And uh, there's other pieces of good news as well. Um, I don't know how they're finding the bandwidth, but right now the Biden administration and our Congress continue to have enough focus on Lebanon in spite of the problems that uh, we are facing in the world. Um, I spent an hour just two nights ago with Senator Van Hollen, um, and we continually meet with members of the Foreign Affairs Committee and Foreign Relations Committees of the Congress. Um, and I think that there continues to be a lot of interest in Lebanon. On the appropriations process, there's also good news. Um, I think in the omnibus bill that was just passed um, today or last night, we may see a huge increase in support for Lebanon. So this year and next year, I think we've got pretty much uh, large appropriations, maybe topping 300 million in direct new aid uh, for Lebanon, uh, going uh, to them for humanitarian security, and other purposes. So that's baked in. Um, that's not gonna compete with the larger um, uh, problems that the US faces. And what uh, the United States is doing for uh, Ukraine is over and above the budget mark. So, th so they're not gonna rob Peter to pay Paul. That's another uh, good thing that's uh, going on. The last good thing that's going on, and I've heard this from Senator Van Hollen recently, and other members of Congress, it meant a lot to the United States that Lebanon um, condemned Russia for its atrocities and then voted uh, in the UN in support of um, the um, United States and its allies uh, that care a great deal about uh, Ukraine and supporting them. That's another positive feature that we have together uh, moving forward. Um, I think, uh, so that, I see that as the good news. Um, the, the real problem comes down, though, to whether or not we have a partner. And right now, uh, as Mona alluded to, um, it's very hard to see uh, the Lebanese government coming together to form a partnership. We've met with the IMF recently. We had a long discussion with them about that package and those discussions. And we get a continuing feeling that um, there are forces in the government that really want to move a reform package forward and are looking for all means to do that. But there are other factions in the government that are not being helpful. So until the, the Lebanese government can come together and find a consensus uh, we're in trouble. Uh, Mona talked about uh, several points. One was the importance of the IMF package. 
the IMF uh, also told us when we asked them, are we going to, are you going to rob Peter to pay Paul when it comes to Lebanon versus Ukraine? They assured us that's not how they work, that they've got well over a trillion dollars in ability to deal with problems around the world. And they have put one of their best teams that they have at IMF on the Lebanon account. But you got to have a partner when we're moving forward to come up with, number one, an IMF package. They're going to need several billion dollars in aid and support for a reform package. And the only place to get that kind of help is from the IMF. So that's uh, another important uh, point that uh, we should discuss today. The elections are important. They have to happen on time. Um, And I think Mona brought up a very good point, and that is, will we see an IMF package before the elections? I think more and more we're beginning to realize that it's going to be hard to see that, although the Makati government is working day and night to try to get there, there are factions within that government that probably will hold it, hold it, hold it back. But we have to have elections on time. And although the elections won't change a lot in the short run, um, if, in fact, the current Hezbollah and its allies uh, that controlled the uh, majority of the parliament seats lose just 10 seats to opposition figures and its allies, um, they will lose the majority. Uh, so there, even though um, 10 seats aren't going to change everything, um, it means a lot in terms of the election. And it also starts to create a sense of hope. So we've got to make sure the United States is helping with free, fair, and on-time elections. And we have every reason to believe they will. Um, We've got to continue to support the LEF in its mission uh, to protect the sovereignty and territorial integrity of the country. Um, And they're viewed as one of the few, if not the only institution in Lebanon performing its duty well. Um, And and of course, we've got to support to address um, not only the humanitarian crisis, which Mona alluded to, and also I describe in terms of of the U.S. uh, effort to supply uh, appropriations, help through the appropriations process. I should mention, you know, the United States is the number one um, uh, uh, supporter of aid to Lebanon. Uh, It's probably, uh, Mona will know this, top five uh, recipients of foreign aid from the United States, maybe top 10, but a country of four to six million people, that's saying a lot. Um, and I think it will top over 800 million when you consider UN supported aid and other forms of aid in the past year. So we will continue, I think, to address the humanitarian uh, problem as well. But um, for us to be hopeful, um, we're, we're going to need a partner, and we're going to need a partner quickly. Um, I think there are elements in Lebanon that want to help through their government um, reach a new reform package. But in order to do that, the United States and its allies have to keep the significant pressure on that country to do the right thing. In the meantime, I think Lebanon has helped itself a great deal in its recent vote uh, in the UN regarding the Russia-Ukraine process. Uh, Maybe I'll stop there, Jean, and I'll let you ask other questions. You know, the questions are just gonna be tough, Ed. (laughs) We're kind of filling in the puzzle that's Lebanon and we're putting all the pieces together. And I think one of the ones that you touched on but didn't address specifically, and, and we hear it every day, are the twin issues of what's gonna, happen in terms of the electricity sector. As Mona said, they have so little power every day. And how does that tie into the whole issue of countering corruption? So, um, okay. So let me just tell you, um, to to go to the larger um, Ukraine-Russia problem, um, I've talked to uh, some of the folks in Lebanese government yesterday And their concern for wheat is there, of course, and Mona described that. 
but that's something on the order of a couple hundred million dollars. Um, that can be addressed uh, with the right kind of help. Um, and it has to be in the short term. But what can't be addressed is what the Ukraine crisis has caused in terms of fuel crisis, the fuel, a rising fuel price in the world. That's just going to add all the more to the program that the Makati government was working on and inflation around the world. The inflation that's going to happen is going to doubly hit Lebanon and their so-called reform package that they're dealing with. So this, this Ukraine problem has added um, significantly to the pressure on this government to come up with a package that the IMF can address. So when it comes to the short term, there's you know some good news. Amos Hochstein, um, who I heard yesterday is loved all through uh, Lebanon. He's really made a great impression there in terms of uh, working the proposals for electricity and natural gas from Egypt and Jordan. Um, the electricity project, um, all that's left is pulling the lever in terms of its technical capability. It's ready to go. And all that's needed there is a plan submitted by the government saying how they intend to address the longer term considerations for electricity. And once they show that plan, just a plan on paper, once they show that plan, uh, the World Bank will issue the funds necessary to pay, pay the electricity bill for the coming months. That's all that's needed. Uh, so hopefully in the next few weeks, you'll see um, the electricity number of hours go up by three or four hours a, a day with that. On the natural gas, um, um, very little work has to be done on the pipeline to get that moving uh, very quickly. It's all on the Lebanese side uh, of the border now, and they expect to have that done in the next few weeks. Um, and they believe they have a solution for um, um, uh, addressing that issue as well. So I think we're going to see kind of some pressure eased up uh, in the short run for the coming months once those two projects get off, uh, get up and running, and everyone's thinking by the end of the month, the longer term, which involves this plan. My God, they've got to come up with an electricity plan. It's so easy. We have worked on these plans throughout the region. All of the people on this panel knows that we can have a private-public partnership quickly if we can separate generation, transmission, and distribution for electricity. We can get a private sector, uh, uh, the private sector into Lebanon, create a solution in the next year, year and a half, and bring this to 24 hours a day in the next two and a half years, say. That's very possible, but we need a partner to agree to a plan that everybody knows can happen. So uh, I hope that addresses maybe the, the pros and cons of where they're faced with on electricity, uh, food and fuel. But on the electricity, that's very helpful. But what about the whole issue of corruption? I mean, you can't have an electricity solution until you have a government and a regulatory authority that acts in the interest of the people, not the sectarian leaders who have been lining their pockets. Set up a regulatory commission. It's done everywhere in the world. We did it in Morocco when I was there. Um, you set up regulatory commission. You unbundle electricity. You bid out the, um, you bid out the generation. You can, uh, uh, you can compete distribution. And then you've got to control EDL on the uh, 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 transmission through the regulatory commission. It's already in the law. They just have to show that number one, they, they have the um, willpower to do it and they're gonna appoint commissioners that are acceptable to the world community to release the, the ability of the funding. Remember the World Bank has $900 million in programs ready to go. Um, all they need is a partner to work with. There's over one billion from the IMF and um, and uh, SDRs um, that are ready to go. The, there's two billion dollars right there 
if they would come up with a few of these plans. So pressure continues to be important. And I must say in that regard, our ambassador in Lebanon, uh, Dorothy Shea, has been very competent in pushing uh, the agenda forward for the United States, uh, along with um, you know our allies that speak with one voice. Thank God. Thank you, Ed. One, one of the issues that you raised was the humanitarian assistance to people. Just following that line for a, a moment or two. Um, two issues. In fact, there was an article or a report released yesterday by the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies that talked about the untenable situation in the educational sector. Can you address the issue of brain drain in Lebanon? And can you also talk about separately, but related is the refugee issue and what, what about all these refugees in Lebanon? Thanks so much, Jean. Um, I wanna make one quick comment. Uh, I, Ed laid out really well all the issues with respect to the, the electricity sector, but I think there's one other comment I think that's worth underscoring. And that is that Lebanon, you know, is the, the electricity generation in Lebanon is among the most expensive in the world because of the inefficiency and the corruption that is so replete throughout the electricity sector. What's really important to underscore though, is the ingenuity and the entrepreneurial spirit of the Lebanese people. And the fact that there are some really interesting green solutions out there as well. Um, renewable energy has tremendous potential in Lebanon. And I know from contacts with USAID, they're already piloting some interesting projects looking at solar powered generators. Lebanon, because of its horrendous record of the government's inability to provide adequate electricity to the Lebanese people, relies a lot on generators, diesel powered generators, which are not only expensive, but also very polluting. And so there, the AID is looking at deploying in different communities, solar powered generators for backup. And so I just wanna make a quick point on the importance of number one, some green solutions as we think about climate change and number two, um, thinking through and tapping uh, the incredible uh, uh, ingenuity and entrepreneurial spirit of the Lebanese themselves. Um, on the humanitarian situation, let me, Maybe speak first about the uh, refugee situation, Jean. Thank you for raising it because it is so significant. And in not mentioning it in my opening remarks, I certainly did not mean to uh, diminish how significant that challenge is. Uh, when I worked at USAID uh, from 2014 to 2017, nearly all of my time working on Lebanon was spent on the, on the challenge of Lebanon's posting of Syrian refugees, uh, which is, if we think about it, truly an international public good for Lebanese communities to open up and, uh, and, and host large numbers of Syrian refugees. At one point, Lebanon had the highest uh, proportion per capita of, of refugees in the world. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but if it's not, they're, they're near the very top of the list. Unfortunately, what we've seen is just as the Lebanese are, are suffering and you're seeing more and more Lebanese thrown into poverty, you're seeing an already very fragile uh, Syrian refugee population suffering even more. So there are Lebanese uh, Syrian refugees, more than 90% live in extreme poverty. And this is something to be aware of with respect to as, as the economic situation in Lebanon continues to worsen, unfortunately, in the short term, we do have to be aware of uh, the ways in which this can sometimes provoke tensions between Lebanese host communities and Syrian refugees. By and large, this, the, the Lebanese have been quite generous when one thinks about the, the, the huge number of, of refugees they're hosting. But over time, one has to look and, and, and watch carefully and be sure that these, these potential tensions between the two communities uh, don't grow. And to do that, it is important certainly to continue to provide and make sure that Syrian refugees are provided for. And here I have to just make a quick side note about uh, donor fatigue. The, the Syrian conflict is now going to be entering its 12th year later this month. 
And so this is a longstanding now conflict and, and we've seen uh, growing donor fatigue, particularly in the face of so many other demands. So it's important to maintain funding for Syrian refugees, but it is also important to be very sensitive about how that funding flows and to ensure that at the same time, Lebanese host communities are, are well cared for and, and that they too are receiving benefits. Otherwise, there's, there's the unintended effect of actually promoting conflict when that of course is not at all uh, the intention. Jean, on the humanitarian front, and I've seen the, I saw the report, I've yet to read it uh, from LCPS, but I will read it with great interest because I think this is perhaps in some ways the greatest threat Lebanon faces and why it demands um, immediate international engagement. And that is this change in Lebanon's um, character, if you will. Uh, we have seen significant numbers of well-educated Lebanese, people of means leaving the country, the brain drain that you reference. I don't have numbers at the ready, but large, large numbers of lawyers, and doctors, and professors, uh, really the, the most, uh, you know, that's sort of the backbone uh, of, of the, the country's uh, in, in intellectual power and, 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 uh, and, and capacity, human capacity. That is very concerning. Um, um, and I think that's something that, that needs, there's close watching. Um, my own sense though, as a Lebanese American is that the deep attachment many Lebanese hold for their land uh, hopefully suggests that if the situation in Lebanon stabilizes that these, these people will come back, but it is notable. Um, on, as a result, I think it's important to ensure that middle-class Lebanese have access to top-notch universities like the American University of Beirut, like Lebanese American University. Here too, there's important assistance provided by USAID in the form of scholarships to Lebanese. And that's super important to ensure that Lebanese are able to avail themselves of this very, very important uh, resource. And something that actually, as, uh, you know, as I would argue, one of the most powerful tools of American soft power that really helps to shape Lebanon. But the issue I think we have to really focus in on is this new challenge of Lebanese children who are not able to attend school. And that's gonna require some important creative thinking about what kinds of interventions can be undertaken so that, uh, they, that these kinds of negative coping mechanisms where young children are forced to go work as opposed to go to school in order to help provide food for their families, put food on the table, how do we address those challenges? One example, something that we've done in the past, certainly with refugee children, is providing food assistance to children who come to school. And so in essence, uh, rather than having to go out and work, they can go to school and be able to bring food assistance home to their families. Um, in addition, I think it's important to keep a close eye on how the public education system in Lebanon may actually be increasingly taxed as I said, as more and more Lebanese are unable to afford private education which, uh, or parochial education, which had often been the ways in which uh, many, many Lebanese educate their children, how to look at US assistance programs in particular, which have long played a role in the education sector to ensure that they are indeed helping to uh, strengthen the education system in Lebanon, build resilience, provide for uh, the many, many needs of, uh, in particular, vulnerable Lebanese families so that children do get a good education. If we don't get a handle on this, and of course it's on the Lebanese government to be in the forefront of this, but as, uh, as part of our own policy toward Lebanon, in order to ensure against Lebanon transforming into a humanitarian basket case, as I've warned against, I think addressing this humanitarian challenge, particularly with respect to children and education, should be front and center uh, as our, as our uh, government thinks through and considers how best to engage uh, on this crisis. Thanks so much, Mona. I, I feel that uh, we have to, in the last few minutes that we have, talk about the, the elephants that are left in the room. I think most people don't focus on the fact that 
if the elections happen in May 15th and a new parliament is elected, under law, under the constitution, they're supposed to elect the new president within five months. So that means you've got elections in May, and then in the late fall, you should have the election for the president. Now, Lebanon has a bad habit of postponing both the parliamentary elections and the presidential elections. Well, what that means, following up on Ed's remark about how important it is to get the reforms moving, and there's some anticipation that the elections may be postponed, or it'll be hard to implement reforms unless, because in a reform process, the way Lebanon works is they propose a law, it goes to the Council of Ministers, Council of Ministers does their magic with it, then it's signed by the president, and then it's sent to the parliament, which means that Mr. Berri, as Speaker of the Parliament, the traffic cop, who decides what goes on the table and what doesn't, has in his hands the ability to move Lebanon's reform agenda or not. And so if you have a caretaker government from the time of the parliamentary election to the presidential election, that's another five months in which very little or anything will happen. So the question I, I posit to both of you is how do we move the parliament? How do we move Hezbollah? How do we move Amal to do things that will help the Lebanese people and not feel that Iran is more important in terms of where their loyalties lie than the people themselves. It's a loaded question, but you know, if anybody can handle it, you too can. Please, Ed, do you wanna go first? Uh, no, I do not, but I, <laughs> um, Mona is gonna be uh, much better at answering this, but let me just say this. Um, Couple of things come to mind. One is the, the importance of the sanctions. Um, Jean, you will recall when we took a congressional delegation to um, Lebanon in November, we learned from er just about everybody uh, from all walks of life in Lebanon that they really wanted sanctions to be imposed upon the corrupt class. There was no exceptions, except for those people that we'd like to sanction didn't recommend it, but that was the only uh, uh, the only exceptions. Um, and I think that the Treasury continues to look very closely at sanctioning people um, for corruption, uh, abusing human rights, or harboring terrorism. We'd like them to uh, threaten sanctions on those who may hold up the election process um, or interfere and the conduct of the election process. That's um, something that I think can happen. And, and also I think that we've got to continue to put pressure on um, the, the, um, those who make these decisions. You, you mentioned Speaker Barry, um, that they're not immune from the adverse effects of the Treasury Department uh, in looking at these various characters. Um, and that although they think they may be cooperating with us, at some point, you know, we have to point the finger at those who are slowing down the system and say, you know what, enough's enough. You're either going to help this process forward or you're in its way. And we have to reassess what our relationships are with, with you individuals and whether or not you should be sanctioned or not. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point to make is that um, Hezbollah did not invent corruption in Lebanon. That it was around long before they came on the scene and that it was solidified under the Taif Agreement where warlords became political leaders. And it's a, it's a obstacle that Lebanon has to overcome and we hope that the elections will help lead to that. Mona, your thoughts? Really just a couple of quick points. I mean, one is I think uh, I would, very much agree with the points that you and Ed have just made, maybe underscore a couple of things. One, that we're talking about targeted sanctions on individuals who are identified as obstructing reform or who are identified as being corrupt. Second, that we should be, we, 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 we should be pretty um, open in terms of, we should, we should be targeting not only adversaries, but even allies 
who are uh, deeply in, enmeshed in corrupt practices or who are impeding reform. Um, third, and I think maybe most important, is just as we've been seeing with what's been unfolding with Ukraine, it's important that we undertake these types of, again, targeted sanctions um, in coordination with our European allies. That's where I think it could make a real difference because it is the one-two punch of both US and Europeans who are cutting off uh, uh, freezing accounts or travel bans uh, that will really, I think, have an impact on some of the most egregious corrupt political figures in Lebanon. It will really get their attention, is, is my view, without hurting uh, everyday Lebanese. On elections, I just, I fully agree with that. I, I, I don't think we can underscore enough how important it is to hold elections on time. I would just note, in addition to parliamentary elections occurring in, in mid-May, there's also, also local municipal elections that take place. And these are a very important venue uh, for, for change, an important vector for change where independence can begin to come up at the municipal level. Um, finally, I think it is gonna be critical that as much support as possible can be provided to independent candidates, because as you well point out, Jean, uh, it's this, even if, even if there are, even if independent candidates take 10 seats, that would be, first of all, huge in terms of the difference from the previous election in which only one independent won, won a seat. But secondly, it will absolutely dilute Hezbollah's power and it will really begin, hopefully, to turn Lebanon's ship of state toward reform and to begin what has to be, I think, a gradual process toward political change, but we have to start somewhere. And I think the, the upcoming elections in May are a very important place to, to begin. May I, uh, John, may I just underscore yes, something very important that uh, Mona mentioned about the municipal elections. And then her earlier comment about don't forget green technology and what can be done at the local level. Um, I think that's really important for us to convey to, to the United States that the more we start to look at decentralized projects like the solar projects that are going on there and other ways the community can take ownership of solving their own problems, the better. So really important point to underscore that uh, Mona brought up. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. I, I want to close with one last thing about U.S. policy. Ed, you've mentioned that the United States given all its challenges right now, has still the energy to help Lebanon. And I, and I think I want to really emphasize what Amazon has done with regard to the maritime negotiations in the South. Opening up Lebanon based on agreement on what the border is, maritime border is, will allow for the development of the South, which is badly needed. And that will give people a sense of hope, a people of not, of not being isolated. And the more we give Lebanese the opportunity to feel part of something, part of a whole, part of a nation, and realize that they can benefit from feeling that they have more control over their lives than is currently happening, will be a, a big change for Lebanon. So we want to believe in hope. We want to believe that their aspirations, we can help as American citizens, as Lebanese Americans, we can help through our government and individually make Lebanon become the prosperous gem that it has always been talked about. And that aspiration is something we feel so importantly for all the countries in the region. And Lebanon should main, once again, uh, aspire to taking the role of intellectual, cultural, social leader in the region by providing the kind of accepting culture and society that has been noted for for decades. So that's our discussion today. We thank all of you for coming on board. Pat, are you want to make some closing remarks? Yes, John. Uh, thank, thank you uh, very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished speakers. It, it's really been a pleasure and an honor to host you this afternoon uh, for what uh, my boss, Dr. Anthony, would call a, a real cerebral massage. Um, uh, you've, uh, you've definitely in, enlightened us. Um, and John, you brought up the issue of hope. Uh, I can only submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, since we all live in what we call a, a democratic constitutional republic, that you pick up the phone and you call your members of Congress and you urge them. Um, just yesterday, the House passed by voice vote, H.R. 2471. Um, now it's been repurposed to 
uh, and is known as the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2022. You know, look, it's 2,741 pages in this omnibus bill. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there for Lebanon. There's a lot in there for the Arab region. There's a lot in there for other countries that are facing the same kind of crisis and turmoil um, as Lebanon. Urge them, urge them to, to pass it. Urge them to, to increase support. You know, use your voice. You know, the last thing that you want to do is sit and complain in a corner, uh, and then you complain when nothing happens. So get out there, be active, be vocal. Um, there are some exciting uh, provisions in there, as Ambassador Gabriel led, uh, uh, informed us earlier, uh, that, uh, that merit your, uh, your, your time and your attention. And uh, now's the time. Um, you know, encourage those to, to remain in there and to expand some of those numbers. Um, uh, the last but not least, again, I just wanted to say thank you uh, for, uh, for such a, a tremendous event uh, that you all put your time and, and effort uh, into. Uh, on behalf of the, Dr. Anthony and all of us at the National Council, uh, it's really been a privilege and an honor to have all of you with us. Um, we hope our audience benefited from it, and we look forward to the next time that we can work together. Thanks so very much.